a free black woman from Connecticut, Jane Manning James, positioned herself at the center of LDS history with uncanny precision. After her conversion, she traveled with her family and other converts from the region to Nauvoo, Illinois, where the LDS church was then based. There, she took a job as a servant in the home of Joseph Smith, the founder and first prophet of the LDS church. When Smith was killed in 1844, Jane found employment as a servant in Brigham Young's home. These positions placed Jane in proximity to Mormonism's most powerful figures, but did not protect her from the church's racially discriminatory policies. Nevertheless, she remained a faithful member until her death in 1908. The exciting new book, Your Sister in the Gospel, is the first scholarly biography of Jane Manning James. Dr. Quincy Newell chronicles the life of this remarkable yet largely unknown figure and reveals why James's story changes our understanding of American history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and I'm really excited to have on. Uh, I've been really excited to have this guest on for quite some time. It's Dr. Quincy Newell, and she wrote this great new book by, by Oxford University Press. It's titled Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th Century Black Mormon. And she's insisted I call her Quincy. So, Quincy, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, first off, I know I say this a lot, but I really enjoyed the book. It was done so well on a figure that nowadays people in Mormon studies, they often know who Jane Manning James is, but you brought her to life in a way that nobody else ever has before. So I just wanted to say kudos to you because it really is a fantastic book. Well, thank you so much. I really, I enjoyed writing it in a lot of different ways. I had never written a biography before and it was a new experience, but it was really fun to tell Jane's story. Yeah, it was, well, I, it, it's unbelievable that this is your first biography. It's, it's just, it's just excellent. I can definitely see people uh, talking about it for quite some time. So Quincy, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, like who you are, where you went to school, where you teach now, and what are your scholarly interests? Sure. Uh, I am a scholar of American religious history. I did my doctorate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I worked with Laurie Maffley Kipp there. Um, and then I went to teach at the University of Wyoming for 11 years. Now I am at Hamilton College uh, in the religious studies department. My scholarly interest is primarily in the religious history of the American West. Um, partly because I grew up in Oregon and it has always felt a little bit like uh, the West has gotten kind of short shrift uh, in scholarship on American religion. So I wanted to pay attention to that a little bit more um, and sort of think about where I came from. Um, but I'm also really interested in the experiences of religious and racial minorities um, and so that's sort of how I came to the study of Mormonism. When I was in graduate school, um, I was in a class on Native American history, and one of my professors just sort of offhandedly mentioned that the Catawba Indians had all converted to Mormonism in the 1880s. And, you know, maybe I should think about that. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I really should think about that. I had already committed, I think, to a dissertation project on uh, Mission San Francisco in California, the Catholic mission there. Um, so I couldn't pick that up for my dissertation, but I remained interested in, and started thinking about what was it like to be a non-white Mormon in the 19th century. And so that became my, my second book project. Um, and I worked on, on that for quite a while. I was thinking about um, 19th century African-American and Native American Mormons and Jane James just kept popping up in my research over and over and over again. And finally, um, Brittany Chapman, who worked uh, worked at the LDS Church History Library, mentioned one day, oh, she was she'd been reading the diary of one of Brigham Young's wives. And Jane came up and and it, it said something about how Jane had uh, stopped by for a visit and she'd had such a hard life. So many of her children had died since they came to the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, and her husband had left her for a white fortune teller. And I, at that point, all I wanted to do was search the Salt Lake newspapers to see if I could figure out who that white fortune teller was. 
Um, and that's the moment when I decided I needed to write the biography of Jane. I couldn't really believe that nobody had done that yet. Um, but it goes back to this question of whether there's enough evidence. And it turns out that Jane actually does show up in quite a few people's diaries. She shows up in meeting minutes and so on. Um, so there's enough there to kind of weave together a story. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised how often she was mentioned in these meeting minutes, especially towards the latter half of your book. You see that quite often, especially like in Relief Society minutes. Right, right. I There was a moment when I was researching this biography where I just sat down and downloaded all of the issues of the Women's Exponent um, and started going through them. And she does show up quite frequently uh, in meeting minutes for the Retrenchment Society, especially. Um, she speaks in tongues regularly. Um, and uh, sometimes that's with interpretation by another member of the group. Sometimes it's not. She prays, she sings, and so on. And so so she's clearly quite well known to the, the Salt Lake community um, and to the women who are going to church with her um, and going to other meetings with her. She shows up as Sister Jane, Sister Jane James. Um, it does get complicated, though, because there's another Jane James um, who is a white woman from England um, who also shows up in these in minutes and in um, church re- in local records and that sort of thing. Um, so there had to be I, I had to try and pull those two apart uh, in some interesting ways. Usually um, the I could tell because one of them um, they lived in different places. And so it would it would mention which block that they lived on. Um, and so I could tell whether it was the the one I was interested in or not. Okay. Now, while reading the book, and you talk about this in your introduction, you talk about why you, throughout the book, you're referencing Jane as Jane. You know, most people, when they're writing biographies, they'll reference their historical figure by the last name. But you specifically talk about why you why you mentioned Jane by her first name. And I, you did say that it was for practical reasons, but there were other interesting reasons as well. Could you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the reasons to use last names, particularly when we're talking about African-American people, is because a last name was a mark of self-ownership. And Jane was really clear that she had never been a slave and she wanted everybody to know that. Um, but at the same time, she used three different surnames over the course of her lifetime. Uh, she was born as Jane Manning. She later married uh, Isaac James, and so she was Jane James. Um, and then Isaac James left her, and she married Frank Perkins for a little while, and so she, she was Jane Perkins. Then her marriage to Frank Perkins dissolved, and she went back to being Jane James. Um, so there is a, a question of convenience and ease of reading for the reader, um, because often I'm using evidence from late in her life um, to talk about her earlier life when she wasn't married to whoever she was married to when she gave that evidence. Um, so talking about Jane James, remembered when Jane Manning did X, Y, and Z would have just been really too complicated. Um, but I also think that surnames um, for Jane, Jane was the name that she used throughout her life. Manning, James, and Perkins were sort of transitory in some ways. And all of them have reference to men in her life, to her father, to her husband's. Um, and so there's a way in which Jane is really the constant name and is the name that she used for herself um, on a consistent basis rather than those surnames that changed over and over again. Okay. I really liked how you did it because – you know, oftentimes when people talk about Joseph Smith, they'll often reference him as Joseph. And you and that kind of seems to be the trend now within Mormon studies if they're writing about Joseph Smith. Um, and it kind of gives like this uh, personal uh, kinship when you're reading it. You kind of feel closer to the person. And I liked mm-hmm. even just while reading your your book, because first of all, the book is it's a, it's a scholarly book, of course, but it's so easy to read. It's, it's, it's really a pleasure to read. And when you're constantly referencing Jane by her first name, you almost feel like you know her. She becomes a friend and you just want to know more and more about her. It, it was just a unique technique that you did. And I really liked it. I'm glad it worked. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was great for me. I loved it. So you had touched on this. Um, you said that you were wondering if it was going to be difficult to write a biography on Jane, and then you saw that there was a lot of there was a lot more documentation than you had expected. But 
for most biographies and for a, a traditional biographer that's writing biographies, they often try to find subjects that have extensive diaries, extensive journals. Jane is not like that uh, for, for obvious reasons, right? It, you wonder how literate she actually was. So how, how hard was it for you to actually write this biography, if you don't mind me asking? I, I don't mind you asking. Um, I There's a way in which this biography is of a piece with the other kind of work that I do. Um, I, I tend to refer to it these days as needle in a haystack kinds of projects because I find myself looking in all sorts of places for little fragments of evidence. Um, there's a historian named John Sensbach who referred to this kind of evidence as documentary shrapnel, which I think is a really great way of describing it. Um, so in that sense, it was it, it's a very familiar kind of project to me. I'm used to doing that sort of hunt for evidence, um, and I'm used to kind of um, sort of cobbling together a story out of lots of different fragments. Um, this is not all that unusual, I don't think, in um, the, among scholars who do African-American history and Native American history in particular, um, because of the general lack of written evidence or the fact that the written evidence comes from um, white societies um, who are observing and often oppressing the um, people of color that we're trying to write about. Um, so in that sense, it's, again, a, a pretty familiar kind of project for me to do. Um, I'm not sure what I would have done if Jane had left, you know, volumes and volumes of evidence. I would have been overwhelmed and somebody else would have gotten that project done before me anyway. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess I, this feels like the kind of project that I do. I'm used to trying to take a set of kind of sparse evidence and fill in the gaps using imagination and using contextual evidence to, to try and figure out what the most likely scenarios are. Your book reminds me of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's A Midwife's Tale, where she takes that one diary from Martha Ballard and she's just really just hyper focusing on certain aspects of things that she's writing. And you, and she brings out these historical contextualizations and brings the story to life in a way that you know, most people might not have thought to have done. And I feel like that's what you've done with Jane's life. And you've really hyper-focused on these really awesome details that I feel like have been overlooked for over for over a century. And it's it's really fascinating stuff. What do you think are the most important historical contextualizations that you bring out uh, out of Jane's story that she might have written or other things that people have written about her that might have been overlooked over time? You know, I think the the documents that were the most interesting to work with probably um, were the two um, patriarchal blessings that Jane received over the course of her lifetime. Um, Max Mueller has written about these as well, um, and they're they're just really fascinating to think about sort of how Jane experienced Mormonism. Re she received a blessing from Hiram Smith. And then she received a blessing from John Smith as well, both patriarchs of the church. And there, there are really interesting um, references to Jane's racial identity that are embedded in these uh, blessings. And so there's a way in which they're, I mean, they're referencing scripture, um, they're referencing um, the curse of Cain, and um, and so Jane is is sort of getting a blessing at the same time that she is being reminded of the curse that white Mormons believe she's labored under. Um, and so thinking about those blessings in, in the context of Jane's religious identity, her racial identity, um, and the racial dynamics of the church at the time was really fascinating to me. Um, the other piece that was was really interesting about them, um, so Jane received the uh, patriarchal blessing from Hiram Smith in 1844. And in 1894, 15, 50 years later, um, she is sealed to Joseph Smith as a servant in the Salt Lake Temple by proxy. She's not allowed to go into the sealing room. Um, her one of her sons dies, 
And she goes to a retrenchment society meeting and asks to have that 50 year old patriarchal blessing read out loud. And it's done for her um, in that that really public setting. So I, I think there's a way in which she's bringing together all of this um, this religious and, and spiritual um, sort of importance into this one moment. She's been sealed in the temple, even though she couldn't attend. She's lost a, a son. Um, and she comes back to this 50-year-old blessing, whose words I have to think she has been thinking about for 50 years. Um, and the words must mean so much to her. So thinking about that was really interesting for me. Yeah, you're touching on a lot of points that I want to ask you. I mean, you had brought out the fact that Jane, I mean, she it's unbelievable how how many lives, important people's lives within Mormonism she intersected with. I mean, mm-hmm. she lived in the house with Joseph and Emma Smith and was their, you know, their house servant for a year. She worked for Brigham Young. She knew John Taylor. She got a patriarchal blessing from Hiram Smith. She got a second patriarchal blessing from Hiram Smith's son John Smith. I mean, it's just unbelievable how her life, she's directly interacting in in pretty fundamental ways with these really important people within Mormonism. Right. Yeah, I refer to her often as the Forrest Gump of 19th century Mormonism. <laughs> she kind of because she knows everybody, right? I mean, she she is she's literally doing their their laundry. Um, and so she knows all of the important people. She's kind of in the background at all of those important moments. Um, one example is, um, so there's a really, uh, famous, uh, Christmas, uh, party that, um, Joseph and Emma Smith give in Nauvoo in 1843. And it's famous because, um, Orrin Porter Rockwell sort of bursts in pretending to be a drunken Missourian and gets into a big fight with Joseph Smith until Joseph Smith figures out who he is and everybody's happy again. Um, But the amount of labor that Jane would have contributed to make that party happen, there were 50 couples invited. So we're talking about 100 people plus. um, And, you know, they're serving dinner, there's dancing and so on. Joseph and Emma are decked out in their their finest clothing. Um, And so Jane is doing the laundry to make that clothing available for them. She's doing the laundry to make all of the table linens ready. Um, she is almost certainly helping with the cooking and the serving and then the cleaning up afterwards. And then they have another party within, I think, for New Year's, so a week later. And then they have another party for their anniversary, maybe two weeks later. Um, and so Jane is in the background of all of that happening. We, we, we notice the party because Orrin Porter Rock, Rockwell shows up. Um, but what we don't notice is all of the labor that goes into that party in order for Joseph and Emma Smith to be the community leaders and the host and hostesses um, that they want to be for the community and all of the labor that Jane is doing to make that happen. Wow. Yeah. It's really great stuff. So what do you, I guess I want to start off with, I guess we'll start from the beginning because since Jane's life is intersecting with all these people and she's I mean, as you're saying, she has a very intimate connection to these people, even though sometimes it's it's a silent connection, but you're bringing that out. So what does Jane's life show us about early Mormonism under Joseph Smith? What do we learn new about that? Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me was how charismatic um, religious experience was uh, in that early time period in Mormonism. Um, Jane uh, speaks in tongues shortly after her baptism, and she takes that experience as evidence that she made the right decision to join the church. Um, she has, she says later that she has a vision of Joseph Smith. Sometimes she calls it a dream. Sometimes it's a vision. Um, so she recognized Joseph Smith when she and her family arrived in Nauvoo. Um, so she has this, and then when she goes to work for Joseph and Emma, um, when she's doing laundry for the first time, she has this kind of trance experience where the Holy Spirit tells her information about temple rituals that she otherwise wouldn't find out. Um, so visions and dreams and healings and trances, um, 
these all seem to point to a really kind of Pentecostal, what we think of now as a kind of Pentecostal experience of religion, um, that Jane is connecting directly with the divine. Um, but that's not super unusual in early Mormonism. Jane keeps doing it all the way through the 19th century. Um, and so it becomes um, more unusual uh, in that other people around her aren't doing it as much towards the end of the 19th century. Um, but it, it seems really to be fairly common and valued and accepted within early Mormonism. Um, there's a scholar named Janet Ellingson who suggested that lots of early Mormons actually had these kinds of experiences and they converted to Mormonism because uh, Mormonism valued those kinds of experiences. And I suspect that may be true, at least in part, for Jane, um, that mm -hmm. she may have spoken in tongues before she was baptized as a Mormon, um, and that she found in Mormonism a church that valued speaking in tongues. Before she was a Mormon, she was a member of the Congregational Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. Um, and the Congregationalists didn't look kindly on speaking in tongues. Yeah, it almost seems like it was an empowerment for her, especially as time goes on within her life with as a Latter-day Saint, because as as you're bringing out, you know, Joseph Smith it seemed like he treated her uh, pretty nicely as, you know, he kind of saw her as almost as part of the family. And we kind of get that sense even from Emma. But as time goes on and when Brigham Young takes over the church, you really highlight how how the racial divide within the Latter-day Saint church becomes much more blunt. And how, as you're saying, Jane is continuously having these revelatory experiences. And it's it almost seems it's a way for her to kind of keep her spirituality and keep her, her closeness to God when it, at times the church is almost separating her because she can't go into the go into the temple to receive her endowment or her ceilings. Right. And you know, it's sort of hard to know how Jane experienced life in the church under Brigham Young because she doesn't, she hardly talks about it at all. Um, she and her husband worked for Brigham Young for a while. Excuse me. And, um, and Jane says almost exactly nothing about him um, in her autobiography and other documents. We have no um, documentary evidence of her petitioning for temple ceilings and, and endowments um, while he is president of the church. So we do know that um, she did some baptisms for the dead while Brigham Young um, was uh, president of the church. Um, that was in the endowment house on a day that uh, Brigham Young set aside basically for black people to go to the endowment house and do baptisms for the dead. Those baptisms were recorded in a separate uh, book. Um, and so they were kept track of. They were um, seen as valid, but as needing to be sort of separated from the baptisms for the dead that white people were performing. Um but Jane wasn't able to go to the temple to um, receive her endowment or to be sealed um, to her husband. Um, her husband wasn't able to receive the priesthood. Um, so all of that um, ends up, I think, being really problematic in some ways um, because Mormonism is... Um, emphasizing more and more that temple experience as kind of the touchstone, the cornerstone of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. And that's not available to Jane. And so she is starting to construct her religious identity around these charismatic experiences of speaking in tongues, of healing, um, of, of dreams and visions and, and those kinds of things. And so in that sense, she's sort of... Um, she's becoming kind of a throwback to the early days of Mormonism when there wasn't a temple. And so people couldn't go do those things. Um, and, and she's holding on to that really early version of Mormonism, even as Mormonism is kind of moving away to a different version of what it means to be a good Mormon. Yeah, that makes sense. 
What I found really interesting as well is, you know, John Turner's biography of Brigham Young, he talks about how Brigham Young is, is speaks in tongues quite a bit, even as they're going out West. And that was kind of a point that uh, a lot of other historians had neglected to really talk about this intense spirituality. But Jane's a woman and she's an African-American woman and she's doing this throughout the church. And what I thought was really interesting was that it, it seems to be, especially within like, you know, the Relief Society or in these women's groups, it's when she's having these revelatory experiences, it seems to be well accepted. I mean, they're even recording it in the minutes. So that's just something that I just wasn't really expecting that, you know, from a, from a, from a, from an African-American woman who is kind of marginalized within this, within this church, she, even the, the white women, her, her sisters uh, in the church, they're, they're respecting her and they're respecting her revelatory experiences. Right. Well, and I think they're participating in them too. Right. I mean, so some of those, um, episodes of speaking in tongues are getting translated by other women who are at that meeting, white women. Um, and so, so I think particularly that older generation recognizes that speaking in tongues is a legitimate way of being a a Latter-day Saint and they see it as a sort of standard procedure in some ways. Um, and we should, we should make clear that what we're talking about when we're talking about speaking in tongues is not speaking a foreign language that is spoken by some other population, um, but rather speaking in a language that Latter-day Saints in the 19th century understood to be either the language of Adam or the language of God. So it wasn't something that other people would normally understand. Um, It required a kind of charismatic um, gift of the spirit to interpret. Um, And so so it would have sounded to outside ears like gibberish. Um, but if there's the gift of interpretation there, um, then the, the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation tend to go together um, and a message can be communicated. Um, I think one of the reasons that Jane was able to continue doing that with really no repercussion at all um, and probably a lot of encouragement often is because she never challenged the authority of the church leaders. Um, When she received visions, when she received messages in tongues, um, it was always a way of kind of affirming the church leaders. So she had a vision of Joseph Smith as the prophet, um, or she would receive uh, messages of encouragement for the saints. But she wasn't ever trying to Um, sort of change church doctrine or church policy or challenge the authority of any of the leaders um, of the church. Okay, that makes sense. But don't you think, I mean, this is total speculation on your part, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Don't you get a sense that maybe Jane would have been frustrated by this? I mean, Mormonism is a very collaborative religion, right? And even you're saying, you know, she's speaking in tongues and, you know, the women are having the interpretation. They're all, this, this is this revelatory experience, these revelatory experiences, they're a collaboration amongst the congregation. And yet she is, is in what your book brings out. And what I really appreciated is you're getting this in-depth personal touch to the, the personal struggles of Jane and how she's getting frustrated with that. Even though she is collaborating within the church, she can't go and, do the full temple ceremonies, which she desperately wants to do, especially towards the end of her life. Something that I never fully realized and what your book brings out quite a bit is how desperately she wanted to be a part and receive the full collaboration of what the more of what Mormonism offered. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she, so as she gets older, um, particularly starting in the 1880s, we have the documentation to say she is just she's kind of pestering the church leaders over and over and over again. She goes to visit church presidents. She writes letters to church presidents. She gets other people to write letters to church presidents um, asking for permission to receive her endowments, permission to be sealed in marriage, permission to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a child. Um, and she persistently asks for those things. Um, It becomes really clear that those are really, really important things for her to get. Um, And, you know, so partly that's because 
temples are starting to be opened. And so she can um, conceivably do these things. Um, it's partly because I think a lot of her children die. Um, and so she is starting to feel more and more alone. Um, she's starting to feel like those eternal connections that she wants to create are in danger. Um, her children are also, before they die, they leave the church. Um, and so that becomes, I think, a problem for her in certain kinds of ways as well. Um, and so, so I think that that promise of Mormonism, that families will be together forever, um, is sort of just out of reach for Jane. And I think that is a really frustrating experience for her. I, 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 it certainly would have been for me. Yeah. Do you feel it's because of her, not only her race, but also her, also her gender? I mean, she's, she's African-American and she's a woman. I mean, those are two, in a way, those are two things that kind of go against her in a very patriarchal church, especially under Brigham Young. Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, I think there are ways in which being a woman in a patriarchal church mean, means that you, you just can't get the same kinds of power. Um, on the other hand, I think for Jane, it was easier to be a Mormon woman than for her husband, Isaac, it was to be a Mormon man. Um, if, if the, the sort of foundation of Mormon masculinity is priesthood, and the priesthood is withheld from you, then there's just no way to be a Mormon man. Whereas Mormon women were expected to be kind of like their Protestant counterparts. They were expected to be pure and pious and domestic and submissive. They also in Utah needed to be industrious. And Jane does all of those things really well. She is, and she emphasizes her um, motherhood. Um, she emphasizes her industriousness and her piety. Um, and so she can perform femininity in a way that her husband just can't do masculinity. Um, so in that sense, I mean, I, I think in some ways it might have been easier in some ways to be a black Mormon woman than it was to be a black Mormon man. Um, that said, she's sort of up a creek when it comes to temple blessings. Um, there is there is no way for her to get uh, any of the blessings that um, her white uh, Mormon female counterparts could receive um, because she, her husband can't hold the priesthood. They can't be sealed in the temple. She can't get her endowments. None of that is available to her. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that. That's 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 fascinating. But so another thing that your book brings out that I really appreciated was uh, with Jane. And when you talk about with her being a woman and her being African-American, this isn't just affecting her relationship within the church, but it's also affecting her personal relationships with her husband, with her children, with the people around her. Could you elaborate more on that? that those were parts of the book that I really enjoyed, things that I just never would have even considered. Uh, sure. Um, as I said, I, I mean, I think that being a black Mormon man was a really hard proposition. Um, and I, we don't have a lot of information about why Isaac James left Jane, why he went, uh, why he left Utah, um, why he left the church. But I suspect that it had something to do with the frustration that he experienced in sort of trying to live up to those standards um, and facing that sort of constant racism um, in the Salt Lake Valley. Um, so, so I think that um, my best guess is, I guess, um, that tensions over um, the way forward for their family um, in the 1860s led to their divorce in 1870. Um, I, my guess is that Isaac sort of was, had had it with the church and he wanted to try his luck elsewhere and that Jane wanted to stay and um, stick it out and, and see if things would maybe get better. Um, she wanted to be, stay faithful to the church um, because it was such an important part of her life and her experience. Um, for her children, um, I, I think this is, 
sort of what gives the lie to the idea that Jane was stuck in the LDS church um, because her children don't stay in the church for the most part. Um, one of her daughters moves to California and marries a Methodist uh, minister, and they go um, to Liberia as missionaries. Um, another of her daughters moves to California and Nevada and runs a um, house of ill fame, if we can call it that. Um, so, I mean, there's kind of a range of options for her children, obviously. Um, some of them stick around. Many of them die um, before Jane does. So only two of her children outlive her. Um, and I, I think for for her children, the church was a kind of frustrating experience as well um, for a lot of them. And so they found other options. Um, either they joined other churches or they left uh, the sort of Christian community altogether um, and found their way elsewhere. Um, so Jane finds friends among other African-Americans who have joined the church. The Chambers um, family, for example, is an example, um, as I repeat myself. Um, so Samuel and Amanda Chambers um, move to Salt Lake um, and take up residence really close to Jane, actually, uh, in the 1870s. Um, they later move away, but Jane and Amanda show up at Relief Society meetings for a while together. Um, and so Jane's relationships with other people in the church are shaped by that common faith. Um, but she also has ties to people outside the church through um, the racial community that is starting to form in Salt Lake uh, in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were times while reading your book. I started to feel, I, I really felt uh, like sad for Jane because like you're bringing out, she had two marriages. They really don't work out. Most of her kids, they're leaving the church. A lot of them are dying. She's like, you're saying this, uh, this, this idea of being a, a, a mother of mother in Israel or a, a good Mormon woman, she's able to do these things, but it almost seems like her family relationships, it, 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 it's struggle. It's another struggle for her to retain that good Mormon identity because these, this, you know, these normal issues of life that a lot of people deal with, they're tragic, but it doesn't really paint the, the, the perfect example because it almost looks like her house could be in disarray. And you kind of bring out that that potentially could have caused her heartache. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the results is that she sort of self edits her autobiography when she tells her life story she doesn't talk about a lot of that. She doesn't mention the fact that she has been divorced. Um, she doesn't mention her second marriage. She doesn't mention a lot of what has happened with her children, except for the fact that a lot of them have died. Um, so she kind of edits in a way to present herself as um, this pure, pious, um, upstanding Mormon woman, an example to all. Um, but behind the scenes, in some ways, um, things are a lot more chaotic and a lot more tragic than she is willing to admit to in public, I think. Yeah. In your book, I love how you talk about her silences. You, you, like you mentioned, she doesn't really mention a lot about Brigham Young. And you talk about maybe why she didn't mention Brigham Young. You talk about you know, these silences about her children and, and you bring out these struggles because you're bringing out the historical contextualization of like, well, this is what it was like to be a woman and an African-American woman during this time frame, most likely. And these are some of the things that she could have been feeling. I mean, sure, it's speculation, but it's biography and you do it in such a controlled way that it really does bring the story to life. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I try to sort of present the evidence and say, here's what I think is most convincing, but here are some other ways that we might interpret this evidence as well. Um, that's why I also include the primary sources at the back of the book, um, in the appendix, the, um, patriarchal blessings, um, which Jane's great, great, great grandson, um, allowed me to publish, um, and three accounts of her life that she gave, um, over the course of a decade, decade and a half, probably, um, 
so that readers have those kinds of um, the, the sources that I was working with the most um, and can judge for themselves whether they think my interpretation is the right one. Yeah. Quincy, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I wanted to ask you, so did you, how much contact did you have with Jane's um, descendants and did they get a chance to read your biography? Have you heard anything from them? Uh, What do they, what do they think about your research? You know, I, I've only been in touch with Lewis Duffy, who is Jane's uh, great, great grandson. There might be another great in there. I can't remember. Um, And I haven't sent him the book yet. Um, My, um, my con- so my contact with him has been limited. Um, I've I've been in touch with him. He has sent me uh, copies of her um, patriarchal blessings, um, and he seems to be sort of generally in favor of my research. Um, I've shared other things um, that I have written and published with him about about written and published about Jane with him. Um, and that's one of the things on my to do list is actually to sit down and. I get a book in an envelope and send it off to him. So it's on its way soon. (laughs) Great. You know, you've been working on Jane for quite some time, haven't you been? I have. Yes. I first ran into her in 2005. Oh, wow. So this is a, this is a personal relationship for you. If if you don't mind me asking, I want to get a a little personal with you because I could imagine writing this biography did get personal and that you, in a sense, got to really know Jane and it almost like she became a part of your life. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but could you elaborate more on that or tell me if if that's true or not? Um, yes and no. There are ways in which I still feel like Jane is a real mystery to me. Um, she was so silent about some things in her life and it it becomes very clear that she didn't want to talk about them, but I don't, she doesn't give us enough clues really to go into detail on them. Um, On the other hand, yeah, I've been living with this for quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so in that sense, you know, I I joke that um, when Jane just, kept sort of popping up and threatening to take over my research on this, the other book about 19th century African-American and Native American Mormons. I joked that I made a deal with her that I would write the biography if she would leave me alone. Um, <laughs> so I've held up my end of the bargain um, and now we'll find out if she's going to stick to hers. <laughs> well, you know, you did mention in, and you and you mentioned this uh, a couple times in the book how you know in, in one of her patriarchal blessings that it's promised to her that she will be I forget the terminology it's a woman of renown or basically people will speak nicely about her later on in later on life yeah yeah. Yeah. And, and your book has done that. I mean, in a way it was, it's, you did fulfill that, you did fulfill that prophecy for her. In some ways, I suppose that's true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, she really tried to portray herself in such a way that she could be um, seen as a model. And one of the ways that Mormons talk about her now is very much as a kind of black foremother, as an example of diversity within the church, even in its earliest days. Um, she's held up as this sort of foremother for all Latter-day Saints. Um, and that that use of Jane as kind of a role model makes sense to me. At the same time, it really makes me uncomfortable um, because it glosses over so much that is difficult about her history. And it allows, I think, I think it allows white Latter-day Saints to take Jane as, as an example and as a kind of spiritual ancestor without really wrestling with the church's really troubling racial history. Um, and it's, it's troubling history of discrimination against um, Latter-day Saints of color. Um, and so part of, I guess, part of my goal in writing this biography is to bring out those more difficult aspects of Jane's life. And so that maybe people will be able to, to do that wrestling and to come to terms with um, the ways in which the church has not been egalitarian and has not really promoted full inclusion. Um, so I hope that her story will be helpful in that way as well. 
Oh, for sure. Well, Quincy, I'll tell you, it was for me. You know, when you read Paul Reeves' uh, work or you read Max Perry Miller's book, uh, work, they're great. And, you know, they're kind of giving you a really detailed, you know, overarching uh, understanding of race within Mormonism. What your book does is it brings it down to a personal level and you're seeing it through the eyes of a woman that was not in charge. You know, most biographies are about people that are in charge and she's, and she's a woman, she's African-American and you're, you're late, you're letting us see these really complicated uh, structural relationships within the Mormon church through the eyes of somebody who's living it day to day. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was heart wrenching at times for me. I couldn't put the book down. It, it, it's just, you know, we're both, we're both historians. We both like this stuff, but I'll be honest with you personally, for me, it was just, it was a life changer. I don't really know many books that have done that for me. So I just wanted to say, thank you. It was really good. Wow. That's high praise. Thank you. No, it, it, I, I, I genuinely mean it, but you know, I guess I don't want to, I don't want the listeners to, we don't want, I, I can talk to you forever about this because I want them to get this book so they can see all the details that we're kind of talking about. Cause you go into much more detail in the book about all these issues we're talking about, but on a broader scale, um, you know, this is, this book's going to be important for Mormon studies, but for American religion or even just American history in general, race relations within 19th century America, Jane is really important too. And especially in your introduction, in your, in your conclusion, you hammer that home. Can you explain that to us a little bit more? Why should just people who are interested in 19th century American race be interested in Jane? Well, I think one of the things that Jane's story does for us um, is that it allows us to see some of the more unusual um, options that were open to African-American men and women in the 19th century. Um, so Jane grows up in this tiny little town in Connecticut. Um, she goes to work for a wealthy white family the next town over um, and she joins the Congregational Church. There's no, she's not very far from New York City where um, African-American denominations are really taking off, but there are no black churches in the region where she lives. So she joins this predominantly white church. Um, she's probably sitting in uh, the balcony where um, African-Americans would have been segregated. Um, but She's allowed to join the church um, and she's accepted as a member. Um, and then maybe 18 months later, she um, hears a Mormon missionary speak and she's just like, that was it. I heard it. I believe that what he preached was the full gospel. And so I had to accept it. So she gets baptized as a Mormon. Um, she converts the rest of her family. They go to Nauvoo. She goes to, to Salt Lake with the church. Um, and that seems super unusual until we start thinking about the fact that other African-Americans also seem to follow um, some pretty unusual religious trajectories in the 19th century. So Sojourner Truth, for example, um, joins us a tiny little group um, following uh, a man named, known as the prophet Matthias. Um, Harriet Jacobs, who left um, a an autobiographical novel um, called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Um, she is active in spiritualism. So all of these groups are sort of popping up in uh, Second Great Awakening era um, upstate New York. Um, and they seem to be attracting African-Americans as well as uh, white Americans um, to their ranks. Um, and so when we start thinking about Jane's choice to join um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that starts to look less unusual when we start taking account of the other kinds of unusual choices that some African-Americans are making in the 19th century. So it sort of opens up our view of what was possible in terms of religion for African-Americans at the time. Um, so in that sense, I think it helps us... Um, think more broadly about options that were available um, to African-Americans. It also helps us think about the history of Mormonism in a more complicated and interesting sort of way. It's not just the story of the white guys who started and ran the church or even of the white women who supported them, um, but it also takes into account a whole range of people who don't show up in those standard histories. Um, so if we look at the history of the LDS church from Jane's perspective, 
priesthood takes a back seat, temples take a back seat. Instead, we have to think about how that religious identity becomes compelling to somebody who doesn't have access to those uh, sort of institutional resources um, and how you might make a home in a church that doesn't give you all of those things. So, so in that sense, I think it really enriches our understanding of 19th century American history in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's almost like her life is a constant compromise and negotiation within America and within her own church. Yeah, I would agree with that. Oh, awesome stuff. Again, I'm talking with Dr. Quincy Newell. She wrote this great new book called Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th Century Black Mormon. Uh, Dr. Newell, she's an associate professor at Hamilton College. And uh, Quincy, just really been enjoying talking with you. Um, what, what can we expect to learn from you in the future? Are you working on anything new? Uh, right now, I am going back to the project that Jane's biography distracted me from. So I'm working on a book about 19th century African American and Native American Mormons. Um, it is nowhere near finished. So I have no sort of projection as to when it'll be out, but hopefully sometime sooner rather than later. Okay, great. Well, I'll definitely look forward to seeing that as well. And again, I just, I really can't praise the book enough. It's, it's such a good book. I hope the listeners will get it. Um, it's, it's definitely an eye opener. If I could just use one word to describe it, it, it definitely opens your eyes to several facets of American history that you might not necessarily consider and you kind of see it through Jane's perspective. It's, it's very well done. So thank you so much for the time that you took to write it because it, it definitely must have been a labor of love to bring all that out. Thank you so much. So I, I really appreciate hearing how much you enjoyed the book, and I hope other readers do as well. Well, thank you, Quincy. I hope I didn't take up too much of your time, but really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It was great to talk with you. Thanks so much. <laughs>